Amen. The scene that is before us in Hebrews chapter 11 is that of a courtroom. And on the one side, you have the plaintiff. And the plaintiff on this trial are the first century Jewish Christians, those that were Jewish by blood and by nationality, that had made a, a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and had come out of Judaism and had become born-again Christians. Those are the, um, the, the plaintiff. Now, the judge and the jury are also the same person. The first century Christians that had come out of Judaism and that were now professing Christians. But what was happening with that group of people is that they were now fumbling or faltering in their faith and some of them were beginning to turn back away from Jesus and their profession of faith in Jesus and go back under the Mosaic system that they had previously come out of. Now the reason why they were turning their back on the things of Christ was first of all the persecution that they were facing as Jews. It was not acceptable in that society and in that culture for a Jewish person to accept Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. They did not receive him. And so for a Jew to do that was to open themselves up to persecution and ridicule from society. A second reason closer to home was pressure that they were facing amongst their family members. Family was everything in that society. It still is in Middle Eastern culture to this day. And many of those that had come out of Judaism to profess Christ, in doing so, they were essentially closing themselves off to their family or their family would close them off because the two things were mutually exclusive. They didn't fit together. You couldn't be a Christian and also a, a, a member in good standing of a family that was Jewish in those days. So family pressure was another reason. A third reason was because many of them were becoming disillusioned. They thought that the life in Christ would be something more than what it was turning out to be. They were facing these pressures and these difficulties, and they sensed that they were getting no relief, and things in Christ weren't what they imagined that they would. Perhaps they thought that there would be this conversion of the whole world immediately. A kingdom set up quickly wherein they would have a position or a place. Or perhaps they thought that there would be a, a, a place for them socially or a better standing in some way of their life and things weren't happening for them in the way that they thought. And so some of them were saying, well, this Jesus thing may be good for the Gentiles, but it's not working out for us. And so they were turning away from Christ and going back to the Jewish system. Now, the defendant in this court trial is the author of Hebrews. And the case that he's seeking to make to these first century Jewish Christians that were turning away is that if they do what it is that they are intending to do, turn their back on Christ and go back to Judaism, that what they are doing is they are trading in the best thing for something that is inferior or something that can save for something that ultimately cannot. That they are going from an exalted position to a position of nothingness. And he does that by, first of all, taking ten chapters to hold Jesus next to everything that the old system contained 
and show how Jesus was the fulfillment of it and that Jesus was better than it. And then in chapter 11, he calls 12 witnesses to the witness stand. Old Testament characters that you can read about in Old Testament scripture. And he shows that their good standing before God was not based upon the old covenant system that the Jews relied upon, but rather their good standing before God was by faith in Messiah just the same, only before he showed up as the babe of Bethlehem, as the son of Mary and the son of God. And so he brings them to the witness stand and each one of them testifies all the way from Abel, the son and son of, of Adam and Eve, all the way up through Rahab, the prostitute from the city of Jericho in the days of Joshua and the conquest of the promised land. And one by one, he calls these witnesses to testify that it is by faith in Christ that a person is saved and achieves a right standing before God and that there is no other way for them to be saved. And so these 12 witnesses now have concluded their testimony. And as we pick up in verse 32, the author of Hebrews now turns his attention to the entire courtroom and he calls his audience to listen. And he says these words as he continues now, verse 32. He says, and what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. Essentially, what he's saying to those in the court is he's saying, listen, it isn't for a lack of witnesses that I stop calling names and calling people to the stand. It's for a lack of time that I could go on and on and on calling person after person that would testify to the truth of the things that I'm sharing with you. But I could call them before you to the stand. I could call Gideon. Gideon was a man who was very much a fearful man. A man who when we find him in the scriptures, we find him threshing wheat in an olive press hiding from the Midianite raiders that were coming into Israel and taking the harvest away before the Jews had a chance to finish harvesting and processing the the fruit of it. And it was in a place of fearfulness that God came to him and God said, Thou mighty man of valor, I'm choosing you. You're going to deliver Israel. And through the process of God's calling of him, he raises Gideon up and and he takes Gideon who has an army of 32,000 men. And he tells them that he's going to face an army of 135,000 Midianites that had gathered themselves against Israel. And Gideon thought, how am I with 32,000 going to defeat an army that large? And God said, Gideon, here's how. Your army's a little bit too big. Tell whoever's afraid to just go home. And so he does it. And 32,000 immediately shrinks down to only 9,000 remaining. And Gideon says, God, how am I going to use 9,000 men to defeat an army that large? And God says, Gideon, your army is too big. If I give you the victory with 9,000, you'll get the glory. I want the glory for the battle. Here's what you're to do. Go down to the river and tell everyone to drink. And everyone who drinks like a dog sticking their face in the water, they can stay. 
Everyone else who laps, you know, and, and picks the water up with their hand, tell them to go home. I don't want the strong, alert ones. I want the ones that just are going to stick their head in the water and not care what's going on around them. You keep those and send the rest home. So Gideon goes down. 300 men remain. And with an army of only 300 men, Gideon goes into battle by faith against an army of 135,000 standing Midianites. And God gives him the victory. It takes faith for a man who's filled with fear to face those type of odds and to go in and obtain victory. He speaks of Barak, a man who was very timid, a man who was very insecure, a man unsure of himself. And God sends the prophet Deborah, prophetess Deborah, to come to him and say, you will be the one that God will use to deliver from the hand of Sisera. And, and so Gideon says, I'm afraid. I don't want to go. I don't think I can. Will you go with me? And Deborah says, I will go with you, but you're not going to get full credit for the battle if I do. And he says, fine, that's fine. And so he goes. And certainly he's not the one that ultimately takes out Sisera and, you know, the captain of the army. But by faith, Barak faced his fear and he stood up in faith and he saw victory wrought upon the enemies. Or, or, or given to the people of God. Samson, a man who was wasteful, a man who wasted the call of God that was placed upon his life, a man who was given more power and more authority in a certain way than anyone up to his time, and he wasted it on loose living. He wasted it on foolish things. He wasted it playing with sin and running around with prostitutes and being enthralled with Philistine parties and contests and gambling. And he wasted the anointing of God that was upon his life to the point where he had his eyes put out and his hair was cut and his power was taken from him. But at the end of his life, when he was standing there in the temple of the Philistines with his arms chained to the pillars that held up that temple, he lifted up his heart to heaven and he said, God, let me feel your Holy Spirit just one more time that vengeance might be enacted upon the Philistines. And God filled Samson, who had been weakened by his sin, with strength again. And he pulled down the pillars of the house so that it says that the dead that he slew in his death were more than they which he slew in his life. A man who stood up in his failure and by faith wrought victory in Israel. Jephthah is mentioned here. A man who was illegitimate by birth. He was the son of a harlot, his mother, but his father an Israelite, and he was rejected by his brothers, and he became a castaway. But in the time of Israel's affliction, Jephthah was called upon by his brothers, and they invited him to come back and to lead the standing army, a man very much like Christ considered illegitimate as Jesus was, rejected the first time as Jesus was, but then seen as the competent one, able to deliver, and then called upon and brought back in. And Gideon wrought victory, I'm sorry, Jephthah wrought victory in Israel in the face of that type of opposition, facing his inadequacy and his illegitimacy and by faith bringing victory when it was uh, against all odds. David, a man who is very much our hero, a man who very much exercised faith, but was very much at the same time a man who is greatly flawed. 
A man who was overcome by his own fleshly lusts and saw in that the destruction of his family and saw 20 years of misery within his kingdom and saw fruit of his sin come upon him, but yet still standing by faith before God and being called the sweet psalmist of Israel and being the gold standard amongst the kings. A man not perfect, very much flawed, but a man who stood before God by faith. He mentions also Samuel who in the days of his ministry was considered to be the lamp and the light of Israel. A man who was not a Levite or from the tribe of Judah by birth and ultimately would have no right before God, but yet was uh, given place um, in the temple and ultimately became the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And then, of course, uh, the prophets that are mentioned there generically, all of whom prophesied by faith. And he, the writer of Hebrews now, pointing around to the courtroom and just saying, Gideon, stand up. Samson, stand up. David, stand up. Jephthah, stand up. All of these can testify by faith. And here's a list of their credentials in verse 33. It says, who through faith, subdued kingdoms. That is, that they engaged them in battle and brought them into subjection or put them down from their oppression. Also, they wrought righteousness. That is, that they brought the people of God through their fightings back into a right standing and an acceptable standing with God. Something that we see happening over and over again throughout the period of the judges uh, where they stood up against the current of the time to produce virtue in the land. We read of Elijah, who it tells us that he turned the hearts of the fathers back towards the children, a nation that was very much going the wrong way, but through the ministry of Elijah was brought back to the right way. It says also that they obtained promises. That is, that there were promises that were given, that were accepted and received by faith, and they saw the fulfillment of those promises within their lives. It says also that they stopped the mouths of lions. We see that in the life of Samson, who encountered a lion and yet overcame him. We see it in the life of a young David, who would testify before Saul and say that there was a lion that came and stole a sheep out of the flock and I rose against him and I grabbed him by the beard and I punched him in his face and I killed him. And I delivered the lamb out of the lion's mouth. We read of Daniel who is thrown into a lion's den because of his faithfulness to his God and to stand for the principles that he believed in. And we see that the mouths of the lions were stopped. Who at the, you know, um, entering in of the enemies of God, those lions tore those men to pieces, but by faith, the mouths of the lions were stopped. It says also that they quenched the violence of fire. No doubt a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who wouldn't bow down to the statue that was erected by Nebuchadnezzar and were thrown into the burning fiery furnace that was heated seven times hotter than ever it had been before. And not only were they not burned up, but their ropes were burned off of them. And Jesus was in the fire with them. Three men thrown in, but four seen in the fire by Nebuchadnezzar, quenching the violence of fire by faith. They escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, it says, they were made strong. We read of Gideon, who was weak, of Barak, who was fearful, of Elijah, who had run from Jezebel 350 miles and hid for his life at Mount Sinai. 
And God sent him back. And we see Elijah uh, waxing strong out of that weakness. We see Samson at the end of his life doing the same. It says that they were, they, they waxed valiant in fight. That is, that there was, a, a, you know, a, an inadequacy at the entering in of the battle. But then there was a strength that came upon them, something that, that empowered them when they were in the midst of the battle. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens. It makes me think of the, in the days of Elisha, the four lepers, four lepers condemned to die who looked at each other as they sat in their misery in the middle of a famine, and they thought, look, here we are, we're filled with leprosy. We're starving to death. Why do we sit here until we die? Let's go into the camp of the, of the, of the enemy. And, and if they kill us because we're Israelites and we're traitors, then we die. But maybe, maybe we'll find something to eat and we'll live. But if we sit here, we die. So why not? And they get up, they go into the camp, and it says that as they went in, God caused the camp of the, the, the enemy to hear a noise, to get spooked, and to run away just before the evening meal. And so these four lepers go into a tent, there's fresh cooked food on the table. They eat it, they go into another tent, they see another table set, freshly, no, no one there. And they say, this is wrong, we have to go tell the people that there's food here, or else something worse will happen to us for holding this message to ourselves. But turning to flight the armies by faith, women, it says, received their dead, raised to life again. Now, that, that verbiage allows for two things. First of all, the deadness of a womb. It says that they received their dead, raised to life, or the deadness to come to life. That is the deadness of the womb, and we see that, don't we? We see it in Sarah. We see it in Rebecca. We see it in the wife of uh, Manoah, Samson's mother, that she was barren. We see it in Hannah. We see it throughout the Old Testament that those that were not able to bear, but by faith in God, their wombs were opened and God granted the prayer and the desire of their heart. The other meaning, of course, is that they, they received their dead back to life again. Both Elijah, the prophet, and Elisha, his successor, both of them raised a young boy to life at the request of a, of a, of a broken-hearted mother who had lost their child. And by faith, they received their dead back again. In the days of Elisha, the woman who lost her son, she came to Elisha and she said, Look, I didn't ask for anything from you, and you told me I would have a son, and I did, and now he's dead. And, and, and Elisha looked at his assistant, Gehazi, and he said, Hey, Gehazi, take my staff Go wave it over the child's head and see what happens. And the woman barges past Gehazi. She grabs Elisha by the mantle and she says, No, you, you come. And he came. And he laid upon the child, mouth to mouth, hands to hands, feet to feet. And he breathed and the life came back into the child again. Women received their dead, raised to life back again. And then it says, in verse 35, there's a transition. And it says, and others, now a different group of people, it says that others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, the first group of people that he listed between verses 33 and 35 are all people that had victory over their circumstances. They faced difficulty and adversity, and they found victory over those circumstances. 
But the second group of people that he lists now from verse 35 down through verse 38, all of these found victory in their circumstances or through their circumstances. And notice what it says concerning the first of them. It says that they had um, trial, or I'm sorry, that they were tortured, not accepting deliverance. And the idea is this, is that by faith, they accepted torture because to accept deliverance would be a lack of faith or it would be a denial of faith or to turn their back on their faith. Now he's hitting close to home for a disillusioned group of Hebrews that want to turn their back on their faith in Jesus Christ. He said these by faith accepted the fact that they must be tortured for their faith. He says that others... Uh, or the reason is because that they wanted to obtain a better resurrection. That in order for them to deny the torture would mean to deny what's better for the sake of what's inferior. That in their hearts they knew that to endure this torture was the thing that would ultimately be better for them in the long run. And so by faith they did it, even if they might have had the opportunity to have uh, gotten out from underneath it. It says that others in verse 36 had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. And so we read about um, Jeremiah, the prophet, who in his days, he was given a message from God, but in his days the hearts of the people were so turned from God that in all the years of Jeremiah's prophecy, he had not one convert not one person that came to, to, to repentance or came to faith in the days of Jeremiah, but he was faithful to, to give the message that God gave to him. And, and the consequence of giving that message faithfully is that he spent his time being beaten and he spent his time in prison and he spent his time being tortured, trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment. I think of a young Joseph who faced a trial as God was raising him up into a place of authority wherein he would be sold as a slave. He would wear the bonds of a slave. In that position, he would be lied to and he would be sentenced then to a prison. And in both of those instances, both as a slave and then also as a prisoner, Joseph earned the right and the ability that if he wanted to, he could have run away and he could have gone back to Israel, but he didn't. And he didn't do it by faith because somehow inside he knew that where he was in that slavery and in that prison house, that he was there by the will of God and that to endure in that situation was what God wanted. And therefore, he needed to stay in that situation, no matter how difficult it was, because the outcome on the other side would be better than if he did what his natural inclination would be, which was to run away and to quit. God has me here. God wants me here. I think someone needs to hear that tonight. He says in verse 37 that they were stoned. They were sawn in half. That's what tradition tells us that happened to Isaiah the prophet. He was sawn in half between uh, the altar and uh, the gates of the, the tabernacle. That's one way I don't want to go. You know, <laughs> uh, But I'll go that way if I have to, you know. 
It says that they were sawn in sunder, cut in half, that they were tempted. The idea is that they were tempered or that God allowed circumstances to bear upon their lives in order to prepare them for what they were to be or what they were to do. They had to be tempered like a precious metal is is hardened with heat, is refined, is made more precious and more valuable. They were tempered. They were slain with the sword. Some of them called to lay down their life. Now, isn't it interesting? In the first list, some were delivered from the edge of the sword by faith. And on the other side, there were some that embraced the edge of the sword by faith. Sometimes that's the will and the call of God. It says that they wandered, some of them, in this condition. Sheepskins. That means that the only thing that they could find for clothing was an animal that they could slay and take its skins to have to wear. We we read that concerning um, Elijah, that he was a man that was clothed with animal skins. That's, That's the best he could do for garments and clothing. We read of that concerning John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, that he made of his his clothing camel's hair and a a leather belt uh, that he wore around his waist. They they wandered in sheepskins and in goatskins being destitute. The word destitute means impoverished, even to the point where they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing that they could claim as their own, being afflicted and tormented. And all of these things were done to them by faith. Now, there is a a branch of Christendom that teaches and believes that if a person has faith, that they're never going to have to endure any type of hardship. And that if a person is going through hardship in their life, it's because there's a lack of faith and that they're not believing God the right way, and that's the reason. Well, they need to read Hebrews chapter 11, and they need to read the Bible, and see that what God says concerning faith is that sometimes it's the perfect will of God for someone to be going through something that's extremely difficult, destitution, wanderings, having nothing, persecution to the point of pain and of death for the cause of Christ. And that that can be the perfect will of God and that that can be a demonstration of faith that is greater and that speaks louder than someone who's delivered from the circumstances that they're under or the circumstances that they're facing. It's a damaging doctrine to believe that just because someone is going through problems that ultimately there's something wrong in their life or that they're not walking with God by faith. Now listen to me. When a person is screwing around and they're not walking with God the way that they're supposed to be walking with God, the Bible says that he brings chastisement or discipline into that person's life. And sometimes a Christian can be going through something difficult because God is seeking to bring them off of a straying path and back onto the narrow path that leads to life. But it doesn't stand to reason that every time someone's going through something, it's because they're not in a right standing with God. Sometimes it's the perfect will of God for a Christian to suffer. And notice what it says concerning those people in verse 38. It says, of whom, these that suffered, the world was not worthy. Now what an amazing testimony for God to say about a human life. That though they had nothing, though they they possessed nothing, Though they wandered, though they were afflicted, though they were slain, though they were ignored, 
though they seemingly bore no fruit within their life, on the outward for man to see, yet God's assessment is that if you put all of the world on one side of the scale, in all of its wealth, in all of its value, in everything that it can produce, and on the other side you put that life that has been afflicted and tormented and suffered, then there is not even a measurement or, or any bit of equality between those two things, that that scale would drop so quickly to prove the worth of that Christian or that believer that the, the world would just fly right off that scale, that the world isn't worthy. There's no, there's no equal weight between those two things. The other meaning of that word is that when it says that of whom the world was not worthy, is that in their mind, the person who's suffering, the world held no worth. That though they had nothing worldly, that didn't matter because the world was done to them. It was behind them. And that was faith. It was done by faith. And it says, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. We read that concerning David. For years he wandered in dens and caves. We read that concerning Elijah. A man who had no place. He would go from wherever he could go, wherever God would provide for him. Oh, you're going to be fed by a brook, by a raven. An unclean bird is going to bring you your food. Oh, now the river dries up. Go up to uh, Zarephath. Go, go, go live with a woman, widow, Gentile up there. That's where you're to go. Wandering. And yet that's what God had for him. The world not being worthy. And notice what it says in verse 39. And it says, and these all. Do you see that word all? Everyone from Abel all the way to those who had victory over the circumstances that they were in to those that had victory through the circumstances that they were in. All of them. Having obtained a good report that is a righteous standing before God. How? Through faith that not one of them was justified by their righteous standing in themselves. Not one. Not one of them was righteous before God because they did enough things or they attended enough Bible studies or they fulfilled enough sacraments or they did enough good deeds or they gave enough of themselves or that they were obedient enough. Not one was justified by what they did Every single one obtained a good report through faith and faith alone. And yet, it says, they received not the promise. That is, that they never saw the fulfillment in their earthly lifetime of the thing that they were believing for. What were they believing for? They were believing for a Savior. They were believing for one whom God would send that would take away the sin of the whole world. Abel, when he slew a lamb, was testifying of the perfect lamb that would one day come. When the priests would go into the temple and offer their offerings, they were looking forward to a day when a lamb would come. When Abraham saw the ram caught in the thicket by a crown of thorns and he offered it in place of his son, he was looking forward to a day when God would put his son upon a hill, his son carrying the wood up the hill himself, and his son being slain, the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, looking forward to a savior. 
When God spoke to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he said, David, I will build you a house. David understood that God was speaking to him concerning that the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb that would take away the sin of Israel, that he would come through the the line, the lineage of David and from the house of David. All of them were looking forward to the thing that God would do in sending Christ. And they died on the other side of it, having not seen it, but they believed it even to the point of death, never laying laying down their testimony or turning their back on their testimony. You say, well, what was the promise? It says in verse 40, God, having provided some better thing for us. Do you see that word better there? That's the whole theme of the book, isn't it? It keeps coming up over and over again. Better. What's the better thing? It's Jesus. And I want you to see that word us. Do you see it? God having provided some better thing for us. Do you know what he does there? Is that he lumps the New Testament Christian into the family of faith that he has just testified concerning of all the way through chapter 11 that every one of them obtain what we also obtain through our faith in Jesus Christ. They looked forward towards it. We look backwards at it, upon it. That one moment in time, the cross, is what all of time and eternity hinges upon. And righteousness is in that place, both for those that came before and those that came after. To those that were before, their faith is looking forward. To those that came after, our faith is looking back. But God has provided in Christ Jesus a better thing than what the Old Testament system could have provided. So that they that are outside of us, or those that don't have faith, or those that are seeking to find their way to God some other way than through Christ, that they may not be made perfect. In other words, the closing words of this part of the author's argument as he speaks to these people is that he's saying, listen, if you go through with what you're intending to do and turn your back on Jesus Christ to go back into that system, then you are leaving the state of perfected and you are going back into the state of a not right standing with God. And he was saying, I would highly caution you against making that move because those that are outside of Christ remain in a place yet unperfected. So what does all this mean and how does it apply? Chapter 12, verse 1, entering into now the third portion of this defendant's argument, that is his closing arguments, as he seeks to now apply what he said. He says, wherefore? And that word wherefore is called a connective junction. And what that means is that it takes everything that he has already said and it connects it to what he's about to say. So in other words, in light of everything that I have spoken, he says, wherefore, seeing that we are compassed or surrounded about with such a great cloud of witnesses. And the idea behind these witnesses is everyone that has just testified before us, not only the ones that he's mentioned by name and by story, but also all of those that have already walked this walk and lived this life, 
and that have done it by faith and have obtained the prize, that they are witnesses to us that it is by faith. He says we are surrounded by a great cloud of testifiers. Let us therefore lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So what the author does here now is he looks at us. And do you notice the word us? This is now inclusive. It speaks to you and I even to this day. Is that he takes the Christian life. He takes the life of faith that we're called, all called to, to, to live in. And he compares it or likens it unto a race. And that's a great illustration that he, that he uses there and that he pulls from in order to, to talk about this life. Is that every one of us is running as it were a race. And the idea behind the race is not that we're competing with one another as to who's going to get there first and can I outpace you, you know, and can I obtain the prize in front of you. That's not the idea. We don't compete with one another. But rather, when he talks of it as being a race, he's referencing the difficulty of the race that we're running. And that is that, that we have to have in this life the mindset as though we're running a race. On Thanksgiving Day, my uh, three oldest children and myself, we ran a 10K. We do it every year. It's called, well, it used to be called the Turkey Trot. Now it's called the Race with Grace. Uh, George's father runs it. For him, it's called the Turtle Trot. You know, so it doesn't really matter. The name is irrelevant, you know. But we ran this thing, and, you know, we run with the kids because that's what you do when you don't have a lot of disposable income. You're like, what do you, want, you guys want to do? You want to go run? <laughs> Let's go run, you know. So if you can't hike, and <laughs> you run, you know. So we run a lot. And um, good for the kids, great bonding time, you know, and, and stuff. But we run together, and we ran this 10K on Thanksgiving Day, and um, not much training this year. And so we all thought, yeah, everybody's got a good run in them, even without training much. And so we go to this uh, 10K on Thanksgiving morning. We had been driving since 3 a.m., drove from here to Rochester where the in-laws live, uh, drove right to the race. So we pull into the parking lot, we change our clothes real quick, and we go out and run six miles Thanksgiving morning. And it was a little bit of a shock, you know, to every one of us. You know, first mile, it's like, hey, we're feeling good. This is great. Should we pick up the pace, you know? And then by like mile four, mile four and a half, now the gray hair is starting to pass us, you know? <laughs> Are you going to really let that person pass you, Sarah? <gasps> you know? <laughs> That's the idea. Is that there's some difficulty involved in this. There's some training. There's a mindset. There's something that you have to be, you have to prepare for. You must be prepared for in the running of this thing. Because yes, if you're not, then there's going to be some disillusionment along the way because it's not necessarily easy to do it. There might be some persecution because you're running on a course and in a world that is hostile to the things of God and the things of Christ. And so there's some things that you need to be prepared for and readied for in this race. Now there is competition in the race, but it isn't other Christians. The competition that we face comes from the world that resists us. The competition comes from the devil who will throw anything in our path to seek to keep us from attaining our goal, our prize of getting where we're seeking to go. And the biggest opposition that we face in this race is ourselves. The flesh life, the carnal things, 
the things that have inclinations towards the world and the devil that we're turning our back on and running away from. There is opposition and competition in this race, but he likens it unto a race. And the desire that God has for every one of us is not that we should just enter into this race and run it for a while and then quit because it's too hard, but God's desire for us is that we should finish the race. So how do we do that? And so the author gives to us in these two verses, and we'll go no further than verse 2, some ways that we can keep in our minds, some things that we can keep in our perspective, some things that will help us as we live this life to ensure that we see ourselves to the finish line or that God sees us ultimately to the finish line. So what are they for you and I that want to run this race, that want to finish, that want to obtain the prize and not quit or be disqualified or fall away? How can we run this race and win this race? Number one is that we should look to those that have already run this race and finished it. That's what he says. He says, because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. What we just heard over the last two and a half weeks of our Bible study is the testimony of those that have already run this race and that have finished it. You say, well, I'm running my race, and in the middle of my race, I'm feeling this incredible uh, sense that I've been abandoned and betrayed. Well, you need to talk to Enoch, because Enoch walked with God for 300 years in a time when he was the only one. You say, well, I, I feel like I'm standing alone as a Christian in the place that I'm living, and the pressure of standing alone as a Christian is way more than I can bear. You need to talk to Noah, who can tell you a thing or two about what it means to run this race standing alone while the whole world stands against him. You say that the temptations that I face in this race are way too strong for me. The the, the situation that I'm in or the things that are in my flesh from my past life or that I inherited from my parents or that are just part of the world that we live in today, those temptations are so great that it's unreasonable for God to ask of me that I would overcome those temptations for his sake and not give in to them. You need to look at Joseph. A 17-year-old young man who's being put on by an attractive Egyptian woman at the time of life that a 17-year-old is tempted in that way greater than any other time. Facing the greatest temptation that a man can face, and yet he overcame it. And he testifies, and he says, it can be done. God can give you the strength to do it. You see, my issue isn't there. It's my emotional problems. It's my mental problems. It's these disorders. It's my mind that spins and whirls that I can't get a hold of. You need to talk to David. Welcome to the family. A bipolar David wrote psalms. The ability to experience high highs and low lows and to one day feel like God is right there and the next day wonder, where in the world are you? Am I alone in this thing? David testifies and says, I know what it's like to run on that course and you can do it. It can be done. You say, my issue is family problems. If you knew what it was like in my household. If you knew the level of dysfunction. If you knew what it was like to raise my kids, if you knew the errors of my past and the reaping that I'm experiencing on account of those errors of my past, then you would know that it isn't quite so easy to just say, well, God's going to work it all out, that he's in the middle of it. You need to talk to Jacob. Jacob had the most dysfunctional family of all time. He had four wives. Two of his sons were mass murders. His oldest son had sex with his wife. I mean, talk about dysfunction. It was sick what was going on in Jacob's family. And yet Jacob can testify to you and I today that this race can be won. You can come to the end of it and stand. 
You could say I'm being defeated by the lust of my flesh. It's way too strong for me. You need to hear Samson, who can say to you that though you have fallen, the righteous will rise seven times and that God will forgive. You say I'm having trouble laying down my life. You need to look and talk to Isaac. He says, you want to talk about laying down your life? I know what it's like to lay down my life and look at my father with a knife over me. Listen, whatever it is that God has called you and I to, there are witnesses that have already run the course that we're on that have successfully finished it. And part of our success in this race is looking consistently to those that have already run this race and have completed it. So he calls us to look to those who've already run. The second uh, thing that he gives to us here concerning a successful uh, finish to this race is that he calls us to lay aside every weight. You'll notice uh, that he says there in verse 1. He says, let us lay aside every weight. And the idea behind this is that when you're running a race, every ounce of what you are carrying is crucial and makes a difference in, 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 in the outcome of the race. You wouldn't run a marathon with a backpack on your back or wearing military and army boots. You would be as, as light and lean as you possibly can because every ounce of what you're carrying makes a difference. The only um, officially competitive sport that I was ever a part of uh, was that my junior and senior years in high school, I was on the swim team. And God only knows why I was on the swim team. I'm short and I'm heavy and I'm stocky. I never won a single race. I had a fr- friends that did it and I loved the workout, you know, so I was on the swim team. But when sectionals came around, I mean, we shaved every piece of hair off our body that wasn't covered by a swim cap or a Speedo. Because every piece of hair could take the fraction of a second off your time and every one hundredth of a second counts in those races. And what the author is saying here is in this Christian life, it is possible that there are weights that are attached to our lives that will slow us down in our pursuit of the things of God. And so spiritually speaking, there are weights, things that aren't necessarily sin in our lives but that absolutely do slow us down. Jesus gave one of the one warning that to me is one of the most um, fearful words in the entire New Testament. And he said it concerning the seed that falls among the thorns. Remember Matthew 13, the four soils? And he said some seed fell among the thorns. And it says that the seed grew, but it says that the thorns grew up with the good seed and it choked it so that it became unfruitful. And when he interpreted that parable just a few moments later to his disciples, he said that the good seed are those who with a good and honest heart hear the word of God and it begins to bear fruit within their life. But in time, the cares of this life and the desire for riches and the lusts for other things grow up with the word and choke it and it becomes unfruitful. And those verses haunt me because of the, the society that we live in and because of the potential amount of thorns and things that there are that can attach themselves to our lives and by degrees make the word of God that's bearing fruit in our life to bear less fruit and even less fruit and ultimately no fruit. And that's a sad and fearful thing to consider, that the soil of my heart can be good and yet it can be something else that could choke me out completely. Beware of weights 
in this life. Things that the word of God doesn't necessarily forbid, but that you know in your life are keeping you back from fully running on for Jesus. The third thing that he tells us concerning this race and our success in it is that we should lay aside the sin. Sin is disobedience to God's ways or God's word. And the problem with sin in in this race that we're running is that sin is a disqualifier. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul takes the same illustration of a race in talking to that group. And he says these words. He says, don't you know that all they which run in a race run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery, for the prize, is temperate or controlled in all things. Now, they do it, the Olympians, to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible, a heavenly reward. I, therefore, so run my Christian life, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but here's what I do, verse 27, Paul says, concerning his own run. He says, I keep my body under. I keep under my body. I don't let my body dominate me. I don't let my body put me in a position where I'm subject to give in to its demands and temptations. Why not? Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The word is to be disqualified. And sin is detrimental to the a believer because it causes us to become disqualified if we don't compete according to the rules. And so he says to lay aside the weight. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to be sinlessly perfect? No, of course not. The Bible interprets the Bible, right? First John chapter one, it says that if any man says that he has no sin, then he's a liar and he's deceiving himself. We all have sin. The idea is that I don't embrace it or allow it within my life. But when conviction comes, I respond with repentance and faith and I allow God to remove those things from my life. And I don't allow myself to become entangled with things that he's already removed. The fourth thing that he tells us concerning a successful race is that we're to run with patience. That we're to run with patience, the race that's set before us. And that's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? It means to pace yourself. It means to understand that this thing is long and that this thing is difficult. And that if you're not prepared in your mind that this is a lifelong thing, it isn't a flash-in-the-pan sprint to the finish line, but rather it's every day carefully cultivating a walk with God and a work of righteousness within my heart and a transformation into the image of Christ. And I must have patience in this. Paul the Apostle said to those in the book of Acts, he said that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said to his disciples before leaving, he said, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. David would write and say, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian all the time. And so we must be prepared for it. And then finally, he says to us concerning a successful race, and it's in verse 2, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, looking unto Jesus. And the idea 
is that where our focus is and what we're looking at when we're running this race of Christianity in this world is going to make a difference within our lives. Because where we're looking is going to determine part of the direction of where we go. I remember when I was about um, 12 years old, my parents never let me have anything fun. Nothing. I had a bicycle. It was a KIA bike with a banana seat that my dad got for free. You know, everybody else got BMX. You know, they're riding around. Not me, you know. And I was over at a friend's house, Jason Cave, and his dad let him have a mini bike, you know, miniature motorcycle, real small, small, you know, uh, lawnmower engine and the thing. And they're all scooting around the yard, and I was dying to ride this mini bike, but never had done anything like that before in my life. And he said, you want to try it? And I said, yeah. He says, you know how? I said, yeah. <laughs> and so I get on. He goes, here's the throttle. And so I get on the thing. And, and he, this whole expansive yard before me, you know, to, to ride this thing around. And, and to the left, off over here, there's a tree. One tree in the entire yard. <laughs> one tree. True story. And all I was thinking to myself is, don't hit that tree. Don't hit that tree. Don't hit that tree. And so guess where I looked? I looked at the tree, and I hit the throttle, and I went right for the tree. I go, don't hit the tree, don't hit the tree. Boom, head on, hit the tree. Wrecked the mini bike and my head, fell on the ground. You know the little thing? Why? Because that's where I was looking. And ultimately, where we look is where we are directed, where it is that we go. So where are we to look? We're to look unto Jesus. Our eyes are to be upon him. Why? First of all, get this. Because he is the author of this course. Notice what it says back up in verse 1. Just the very end of verse 1. It says, let us run with patience the race, notice this, that is set before us. Every single one of us has a path and a course that is set already for us, and Jesus is the one who is the author of that course. And not one of us has the same course in this Christian life as anyone else, but our walk with him, it will be with him, and it will look like him, but our specific walk is different than everyone else's walk. What he has for us, what we'll do, how long we'll live, who we'll marry, the circumstances, the time of life that we're born into, all of that is ordained by him. And it makes up the race that is set before you. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts chapter 20 verse 24, when he was warned concerning what he was doing, he said, none of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul said, God has a course for me, and I'm going to finish that course. Do you understand that God has a course for you? And part of the reason that we must look to Jesus in the midst of this is because he is the one only that knows what he has planned for you. And if you're going to successfully run this race, then don't you think we need directions from the one who's mapped it out for us ahead of time? He's the author, and thus we must look to him. Another reason we must look to him is because, guess what? He's also the finisher. Meaning, he's the one that carries us across the finish line. Do you understand that? That at the end of the day, none of us are going to stand before God and say, God, I did it. Every one of us is going to stand before God and say, God, I was a wretched failure. I blew it so often. 
and I can't believe I'm standing here. And then we'll look off to his right hand and there we'll see the Son of God Jesus with nail-pierced hands and a hole in his side and the wounds of a crown that was on his head and the robes and the crown of glory that is set upon him because of what he accomplished on our behalf and every one of us will realize in that moment that it was him that did the work that caused us to be where we are. That he is the finisher of the race on our behalf. That we're running it, but he's the one that's fulfilling it. And so we're to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, do you see it? Set before him. He ran a course. And in the finishing of his course, he successfully finished all of ours as well. Therefore, we stand by faith. You say, I'm not standing. I'm sitting by the side of the road, trampled upon like it's Black Friday. I barely have breath left in my lungs. I don't know if I can take one more step or one more breath in this course that's been set for me at this point. What are you talking about, pastor? Run this race and look to Jesus. What does it mean to look to Jesus? How do we look to Jesus? A couple of days ago, I was reading for devotions, John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, and I'm closing, the musicians can come. In John chapter 5, it tells us that there was a great multitude of impotent, sick, lamed, maimed, and blind folks that were gathered by the sheep market, that is the place where the sheep congregate, by a pool that was called the Pool of Bethesda. And it tells us that they were all there sitting crippled and that the tradition was that every now and again, seasonally, there was an angel that came from heaven and that stirred the waters. And the superstition was that whoever could get into the water first when the angel stirred the waters, that they would be healed from their infirmity. And there was a man who was there for 38 years who couldn't walk. And Jesus walked up behind him. And Jesus saw all of the crippled, maimed, lame, blind folks that were sitting there. And he saw the pool. And he saw this man laying on his sickbed. And Jesus looked at this one individual man who could no longer run the race that was mapped out before him. And Jesus looked at this man and he said to him this. He said, would you be made whole? And the man immediately said, Lord, when revival comes, when the waters are stirred, when the Spirit of God moves fresh upon this sheep market gathering again, when there's joy again in the house of God and someone helps me get into the waters in those days, oh, it's going to be glorious. I can't wait. And Jesus said, do you want to be made whole? And the man said, yes. And Jesus said, then I say unto you, take up your bed and walk. And it says, immediately that man was made whole. And he stood up and he took up his bed and he walked. And here's the word of the Lord for us tonight that are sitting here in this race saying, God, I want to run. I don't know if I can run. And I look around and I see Christianity in 2016 on planet Earth. And all I see is a bunch of maimed and lame and crippled and blind 
Christians that have left off doing anything or making any impact or any effect for God almost at all, and we are sitting here not knowing what to do with ourselves, and the Son of God stands over you right now where you're sitting, and he says, your infirmity, the thing that you're saying is too heavy or too hard or that you can't do, or if only there was, would you be made whole? And if the answer is in the affirmative, then the Son of God reaches out his hand to you right now and he says this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And if by faith you'll grab my hand and stand up, you can walk and rise over that infirmity. And you can be, through me, what you could never be on your own. The question is, are we willing? Listen, Christian, there's a race that's been mapped out for every one of us. There's a course, just like Christ, just like the witnesses, just like these that we've read. By faith, will you say, none of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus, and then you fill in the blanks as to what that is. Or will you sit as the rest pass by? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for this exhortation. We thank you that you loved us enough to put things in terms that we would see and understand. And I know there's not one breathing life in this room that isn't aware of our weakness and our infirmity and our inability. But standing over us, we see the strong arm of one who is called Great Grace bidding us to stand and to run. And what we ask for tonight, oh God, is that individually you would take us by the hand, that you would breathe fresh life into our bodies, that you would revive our spirits, that you would renew our vision, that you would fill us with spiritual strength, that you would stir up a hunger in us for the word of God and the things of God, that you would break off the weights that have hindered us and slown us down, that you would remove the thorns from our life that have choked us and made us unfruitful, that you would take away the sin that has perhaps disqualified us and that you lay it again at the foot of your cross and that you would set us back again in the place of running for your purpose. Father, we can do nothing without you. So would you tonight, Lord, strengthen us would you hear our cry and see our cry and see our position and help us? We're looking to you, Lord, now and asking for your strength. So fill us, hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.